Aggression is one of the last dirty words in our culture. You can be crass, you can be rude, you can even be profane, but ho, oh, aggressive, don't be aggressive, except it's wrong, dead wrong. I promise you nothing of meaning and transcendence will come into your life passively. It's time for you to get into the arena to push back against a passive, mediocre existence. I'm Brian Tome, and this is The Aggressive Life. Welcome to this episode of The Aggressive Life. You know, your life is going to be defined by your decisions. The aggressive life is not one of going around and punching people. It's it's not one of being abusive. That's not the kind of aggression we're into. And even the kind of aggression that maybe means somebody should be appropriately punched because sometimes violence is the answer. I'm sorry if you break into my house and you're threatening me and my family. Violence is the answer. I'm going to be one guy who's going to say that. But you know, violence being the answer is is just so rare. And for most of us, it's never going to be the answer. But you know what the one push point is that happens again and again and again? It's the decisions we make. Successful CEOs are those who make decisions. They may not be those who make the best decisions. They're simply those that make decisions. Colin Powell, when talked about what it means to be a great general, I heard him say once that in reality, you cannot wait for 100% of the data to come in. In fact, if you wait for 90% of the data to come in, it's going to be too late. Great commanders make their decision when they have maybe 70% of the data. Unless we're making decisions, we're not moving. And unless we're moving, we're not winning in life. Life is not working for us. man we're going to interact with today made a rough decision to run away from home when he was 15. He made a rough decision to start a high-end steakhouse when interest rates were ridiculously, ridiculously high. He made a tough decision to not expand his business because he felt like he needed to focus on his kids. He made a tough decision related to O.J. Simpson. The very first tough decision that was really made in the aftermath of that case way back when. He's still making tough decisions, and I want us to learn from him because your life is only going to be as great as your decisions are. Let me say it again. Your life is only going to be as great as your decisions are. And no one's going to say our life was great because we decided to balance our checkbook. Wee-hee, wow, wonderful. No, that will not make your life great. Your life will not, will not be great because you chose to pay your insurance premiums on time. Woohoo! Yippee! Your life will not be great because of that. Your life is going to be great because there's going to be decisions that you're faced with that there's not a book on, that you haven't learned what the right answer is in school, that your parents may not even know because they haven't been in that exact situation. So when you are in that situation with the opportunity to make that decision, the right decision, that's going to define your life. It's going to define whether or not you're going forward or whether you are going backward. Today, we've got a very special guest. His name is Jeff Ruby. He is a restaurateur, a business owner. He is a philanthropist. He has six restaurants in three states. Seven and four. Seven. No. I'm, I'm introducing you. Oh. Do not be aggressively just jumping in. 
Se- go ahead, tell me what are the right statistics? What is it? It's seven and three. All right, all right, that sounds good. And he is a very uh, he, he is a, he is a man who has a very full life presently and has a very full history. When I first moved to Cincinnati, which is where uh, I live and where we are recording this, uh, he was uh, his restaurant, the Precinct, was uh, the ultimate defining restaurant. And still is in many, many circles. And he's got multiple. He's got, you've opened up more restaurants in Cincinnati from when I came. is only the precinct. You've opened up. What are the other establishments in Cincinnati alone? When, when did you come to Cincinnati? 1995. Well, by then I had the waterfront open. That's right. We opened up uh, after the waterfront. Jeff Ruby's right around 99, I think, downtown Cincinnati. Then Carlo and Johnny. Best sushi in the city, Carlo and Johnny's. Love it. First, first time I ever had sushi was a Carlo and Johnny's. So we got Precinct Jeff Ruby's at Carlo in, in Cincinnati. We then did Louisville. And uh, we've done uh, Nashville, Columbus, and Lexington. So here's what's intriguing about my guest today, the great Jeff Ruby. Here's what's uh, so intriguing about him. If you were to go inside of his uh, defining or at least original restaurant in Cincinnati, the precinct, you would see, as I did the first time I went in there, him with who's who in sports celebrities. I mean, every single wall, cover from top to bottom. I remember when I looked at those, all those pictures, uh, it's kind of a defining entrance point when you make it into the restaurant. It's It's really cool. My first reaction when I saw that was, this guy looks really young to be having this level of success. Um, you're, you're, you're a bit older than me now, but the precinct was started a long, long, long time ago. You're, you're in there with Johnny Bench and others who you look younger than them in the photos. So tell us, how, do you, well, how did you get to where you were at such a young age? Well, Johnny Bench and Pete Rose made the precinct possible. Without them, there would have been no precinct. I was working for uh, Weingartner Hammonds, and uh, which had all the holiday inns here in town and around the country. And I graduated Cornell and came to came to Cincinnati to work for them. They recruited me at Cornell. I played football there. The, the president was a former football player. And um, anyway, so they recruited me. I came to Cincinnati, pulled in my 69 Dodge Charger. I had... Um, the little white suitcase that I had when I ran away from home that I packed when I was 15, still in that white suit with the with, with the uh, stripe on, on top of it that I pulled off the good humor truck that I got on. I hitched a ride on a good humor truck, and there's a little sign that said, no riders. I peeled it off and put it on my white suitcase. And um, I still had that suitcase. And I had $20 in one suit and the car. And I came to work in this town. They paid 700 a month. It was uh, 1970, August, and um, stayed at one of the other managers, slept in a couch in his apartment. Uh, In fact, that's where I met Johnny Bench. The apartment building there was where all those people were staying, and um, I met Johnny there. And uh, later, um, you know, Sparky Anderson became like a dad to me, and Pete Rose and and all these guys became friends, and... Uh, that's how it started. But when I wanted to go out on my own. You were how old at that point? Uh, I was 33, okay. 32 when I first started to, start to, to get the thing going. And uh, in, 19, in 1981, the recession was the worst since the, the Depression. Uh, prime interest rate was 
and a half percent. Oh like, my gosh. We talk about the economy in the last few years, <laughs> it might get to four or five. This was reset, the highest in America's history. Inflation was the highest in the, in the post war, and so was uh, unemployment. And this place becomes available. Uh, it was called Amanda's, 1981, and I uh, wanted to lease it. But we couldn't lease it because they had 52 liens against it. Mm. 52 liens. You cannot lease a place that's being sued by 52 companies. So we had to buy it. And and, I said, and Johnny said, well, I don't know. We're not going to buy it. We'll wait to another one. I said, Johnny, I've already been fired from Weingarten Hamilton. I already told him I'm doing this. And the economy was so bad, like every other company, they were downsizing. So they went from five. I was regional manager by then. So they went from five regional managers to three and let three cover the country. And guess who was one of the two they said goodbye? It was me. So now I'm out of work. Mm. Johnny says, ah, let's not buy this thing. I said, Johnny, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm out of work here. Okay, <laughs> We got to buy this. And Pete, and, and Pete got on. And, and then Johnny found a lot of the partners I didn't know that were friends of his that had money. And in fact, one was a part owner of the Reds. But... So we did it, and um, we paid three hundred thousand dollars for the place, and the owners were three women who were very happy because it got them out of trouble financially. And we borrowed another hundred thousand to remodel it, and we opened. But that's got to be a pretty. That's a that's a really aggressive move to to figure that financing out, start your own thing at a relatively young age. There's not a lot of dudes who are doing that. Why what made you be able to do that emotionally? In my book. Your book is, is Not sound, Counting Tomorrow. It's the soundtrack to my life. Every every chapter is a song title. That chapter, the question you're asking is called Against All Odds by Phil Collins. So when you get to that chapter, you will understand. You're not going to tell me the answer. You're going to make me read the chapter. I'm going to tell you what I tell my kids and everyone. Read the book. So you're on it, my podcast, dude. You're on so, my podcast. This is my rules. This is not. I'm, I'm with no, your book. You're on my no. podcast. Oh boy, you're getting tough. I yeah, it's my podcast. You, you what was the you question? You can't come on here and just say, "Well, buy my book." The question was, well, "What separates you emotionally to be able to make that kind of move to start your own restaurant at a young age?" Against all odds is the short answer. Give me the long answer. Bobby Bear had a song. If you ain't got nothing, you ain't got nothing to lose. That's the way I did it. I ain't got nothing. What do I got? I sold my Mark V Lincoln Continental 77. I got $5,000 for that. I had $5,000 in profit sharing from my 11 years with the company. We all had to put in $10,000. Each partner put in $10,000 cash. There was my 10000 But I had nothing to lose. So why not? And that was, and we, you know, I did projections. I did a low, a realistic, and a high financial projection, what I thought we would do in business. And the high, I think, was $900,000 a year, and we would be open for lunch at the precinct. We did $2 million that first year and never opened for lunch. Man. So uh, we were lucky. It was, there was a niche in this city that needed, a hole that needed to be filled. There was no, we were the first steakhouse in this city. Absolutely. The first really upscale steakhouse. And the precinct's the longest running white tablecloth restaurant in the city. Mm. I mean, that was 81. Guys would pull up and big shots would pull up in their Rolls Royces wearing jeans and no socks, like 
just now. And they could eat and relax and have a good time without all the foo-foo or French and formal and all that. And we were doing a lot more than sticks. I mean, we were flaming entrees and desserts and, and drinks. And we did a lot of, because I, I never wanted it to be a steakhouse. But then I realized this is what the city needs. So I made it a very, very uh, diverse menu. Uh, there was tremendous evidence of skill in the kitchen. And uh, it was a motley it was a motley clientele. It was now, a very mixed crowd. You mentioned you were young, and that's a really good point that's come up with other guests that we have is they'll think about, you know, when you're young, you've got less to lose. You've got, you don't maybe have a family. You've got less money in the bank. Putting it all on the line is one thing when you're 30-some. It's another thing when you're 50-some because you got more to put on the line. As you've gotten older and as you've, as you've amassed more successes in more cities, is it harder for you to put it on the line, or are you used to it, so therefore it's easier? Well, when when I did it in 81, I got married uh, a few months later, and I had Brittany uh, just a few months after we opened. She was born the next year in 82, and, um, and I had Brandon all within a year, a year, just about a year. So now I went in there a bachelor, and now I got a... Uh, a little house in Loveland I paid $40,000 for. It. Now I got a big house in Anderson Township, and I got two kids, and and back-to-back, uh, back, and then a few more years later uh, comes Dylan. So now uh, I, this place better make it. Yeah, that's right. But six years went by. People say, man, you're hot. you got to open up another place. I said, you know, fires are hot too, but fires burning out, burn out eventually. This could burn out. I'm not. I'm not doing another restaurant yet. Let's see how long this. I can ride this wave and and keep it up. Now, many of our listeners in cities that are outside of Cincinnati may have never heard your name before. But I'm going to talk about something. We're going to talk about something now that they're going to go. Oh, I know that guy. It was for me. Just a classic example of using your power, using your influence, doing something that other people would be afraid to do. And I don't even know if you know I'm going to ask you, but take us way back. You already know. know. O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson. Some of us, uh, it was kind of, this is is how you know you're getting old, Jeff. You know you're getting old when there comes a mini series on the O.J. Simpson case on TV a few years ago. And your kids know nothing about it. Like, my kids had no, like, O.J. Simpson, really? That happened? They had no idea. The hostess that sat him didn't know who he was. Crazy. And she was 19. So, so okay. let's go back there. O.J. Simpson, he gets acquitted, comes into one of your restaurants, and what happens? Well, that trial, that verdict, has set race relations back so far since then. It's made it a lot worse. What happened in that trial was called jury nullification. That trial, after those cops, after those cops kicked Rodney King like that and got away with it, and if you look at the video of the Rodney King tape, I mean, and then he's the one that said, why can't we all get along? And those cops all got acquitted. What was on trial was the police. To get back at the police for what they did to Rodney King, they were found not guilty. We're going to find OJ. That's, it was, it was not going to work. So here's the deal. It's the night before the derby. It's our first derby. And the place is packed. I mean, really packed. And my manager, the GM, had two armed, uniformed Louisville policemen working at the entrance to make sure 
you know, plus there was a cover charge just to come in if you weren't having dinner, and it was all new to us. So the place was packed. I got a GM. We've been open about 10 months, but this is our first derby, and I can't find a place to sit down. So I have to go up the steps of the stage, sit on a corner of the stage. The band's playing because that's the only place I could sit. So I sat on a stage in a corner. No one could see me there. And I got Jack Daniels, and I got my uh, Ortero Fuente cigar. Some guy comes up, it's all giddy. Hey, OJ's here. He, was, he thought that was great. Now, I had known OJ because over the years he'd been to my places. Been to the waterfront, we've had drinks, took a picture at the precinct. I, I got to know OJ. He was a nice guy. I liked him and everything. I'm sitting there. Now he's murdered people, though. And he's written a book, and he's gotten $850,000 advance. Here's how I did it. Here's how I murdered the mother of my child, of my children, and another kid who had just happened to be a busboy at a restaurant. There were you. Here's how I did it. And he gets paid eight hundred fifty advance. And, of course, I, I didn't want him walking around like... Uh, He's, he's still a, a celebrity. He's still a star. He's still being, hey, take a photo, OJ. Take a, can I have your autograph? So this is after the murders. You know, the, he's been you know, found not guilty. Plus, he's been doing other stuff since then and getting away with it, like beating up another woman. Uh, and then she said, no, nothing happened. He's gotten away with a lot since then, and he's flaunting it. And all I can think of in my mind is the face that keeps popping up on TV years later of Fred Goldman when that verdict came down with her, sitting next to his daughter, Kim. And I've, I've just, and the strength this man has had, he won the civil suit, but he never got a dollar for that. But he did it, for, you know, the reason to get some kind of justice. And I can only have this guy's head, this face, this image, that poor man, you know, and, and the rest of them. So now I'm asking people, I can't make up my mind. Should I, what should I do? So I always have, I have... You're asking people who are sitting around you on the stage? No, I'm asking three parts of me. I always, when I make a decision, I check with three parts of me. My heart, my gut, and my brain. I got to get two votes, okay? Like, if I'm going to be on this show today... That's good. Okay? I'll ask. My heart says, do it. My gut says, what is my... I, I got to get two out of three. Any That's big good. decision. Not like this. It. I'm kidding about the show. So... What do I do? Do I throw him out or not? And my heart said, throw him out, because I'm thinking of Fred Goldman and the Brown family and what they've been through, and I don't want this guy, I don't want this guy in here signing and taking pictures, and, and I, I'm going to do it for Fred Goldman, who I've never met. My brain says, I'm not voting. My brain abstained. So now I still got to get a, a second vote, because two out of three gives me my decision, and my gut won't decide either. What is my gut telling me? Do I do this? My brain, I went back to my brain. My brain won't tell me if this is smart or stupid, and it never to this day voted. I got to wait on my gut because my heart said, do it, throw him out. My gut won't vote. So finally, after three or four sips of that Jack Daniels and three or four puffs of that cigar, my gut said, throw him out. Boom, that was it. I had the second vote. My brain would not get involved. So... I get off the stage and I'm asking... No, stop right there. Your brain wouldn't get involved because you were having a hard time juggling he used to be my friend kind of thing? No, or? no, no. I, I never considered him a friend. I knew him. I okay. liked him. We took pictures together. He, you know, but my brain is, is this going to backfire where people are going to be so upset uh, that I it. threw out 
superstar very complicated oj simpson okay and and you know what then you got the fact that he's black which that never came into my mind the brain never thought about it. the brain thought are people going to hate you for this you you've got 500 people in the restaurant what are they going to do are they going to start throwing stuff at me for throwing out oj simpson he's still a hero are people going to like this or not that i've thrown out a superstar okay is that going to hurt my business and me and I didn't, so the brain didn't vote. It was a, for the heart and gut. So now I got to find him. Nobody knows where he is. I'm asking people, where's Oakland? And finally one says, oh, he's in the Churchill room. You got a room back there. I go back there and there's a few different tables there, people. And there's a table. OJ's sitting there and nobody else is at the table. Mm. And he's looking at me and I walked in. And I didn't know this, but my GM could tell I was upset about something by the way I was storming back to the, to the Churchill room. He followed me. I didn't even know he was following. And I looked at OJ, and he looked at me, and I said, I'm not serving you. And to my surprise, and he didn't, he just stood there. He just sat there. And then finally, my manager says, I went like an umpire, you're out, uh, motion with my thumb and my arm, which my manager saw that from behind. And he just kept looking at me. And I walked out the door, because that was a kind of a private room or it could be public, there was a door there. And he comes out of the room, walks down the hallway, he sees me, in the, just outside the door, and he said, uh, I understand. Is it okay if I find the rest of my party? I gotta tell him we gotta leave. They're all in here somewhere. He was so, but he recognized me. He knew from the past. Mm. And I think that was what it was. So he was so nice about it, I damn near changed my mind. <laughs> and and I almost shook his hand or patted him and said, thank you, but I didn't. Mm. So I didn't know if it was smart or not. We had death threats, and I did a lot of well, death threats and all that. Well, I thought was so but, impressive about that, looking back on that. it turned that, out to be, you know, good. It did turn out to be good, but I don't want anyone to lose the fact that that was an amazingly gutsy call. When you made that call, there was a, a primal yes that went up from America. Because up to that point, no one had taken a stand on anything. You had people who were in the news media giving their opinions on, on TV. But you're the first guy that stepped out and did something that could really, really hurt you. That's you know what interesting. I mean? I said, you know Bill Hammer on Fox News? Yes. He's an elder kid from Cincinnati, elder high school. So he calls me. They were all, all the media was calling me. I said, Bill, why is this such a big deal? He said, because you're the first one that's had the courage that's to right. do it. He's never been told to leave a business since those murders, since that's the right. verdict. You are the first and only one that's ever done it. Mm. Families, you're really, you're really big on being a father figure to a lot of younger folks. How's that come about? Well, I ran away from home when I was 15. I was another home. aggressive thing. <laughs> yeah, I've always been this. I was my attorney once recently told me I, I'm a rebel and a renegade, and I guess he's right. But I, my mother was married four times. I call them my forefathers. And and my senior year, I ran away when I was 15. My sophomore year, and I packed a little suitcase, jumped out the window of my bedroom, and packed a suitcase with my clothes and hopped on a good humor truck. Every child needs to have a parent they want to make proud. I never had a parent that I wanted to be proud of me. My mother, I didn't care if she was proud of me. My fourth, I found out my senior year who my real father was, who she never married. He was an attorney. 
and he was had money and he was doing well and I could have called him um, when I found out my senior year of high school. Mm. That's who your real father is, not who you thought all these years. I could have called up that that real father and said, hey, uh, I'm your son. You know it. I'm struggling to get by. I'm living in a rooming house paying $8 a week with a bathroom down the hall. And I'm sharing that with old senior citizens. And uh, I'm your son. Why don't you send me, you know, you know, why don't we meet? Anyway, why don't we say hello? I never did that. I just wanted to be self-reliant. I didn't want anything to do with anybody helping me. But every kid, don't you want to make your dad proud or your mother yes. proud? Or, you know, that's, that's the way. Well, I never had that. And I had a lot of chances. Four stepfathers, you'd think one of them, and they'd want, you know, I'd want to see, boy, I really want him to be proud of me. And when I ran away from home, and, and my football coach became that person, that football coach, I wanted to make Jeep Bednarik proud. He was the varsity football coach. I had him in homeroom my freshman year. I was the last kid to get a jersey on the freshman football team. One, two kids, one jersey left. Everyone else got their jersey, and we had to fight it out and until one person was laying on the ground and the other one that was still up would get the last jersey. I never played my freshman year. And then Jeep Bednarik started me with his big forearms and a man's man and took me under his, you know, and I wanted to be good. And he... Uh, he became that person, and because of what he did to change my life, I finally wanted—I finally had someone I wanted to make proud. He'd come to my wrestling matches. I could see him there at my wrestling matches. You think I'm going to lose that match? Mm. You know, I, I, my sophomore year I went out for wrestling. I never won a match. My senior year I went out. I was wrestling. I never lost a match. The difference was Jeep Bednarik. I, I wanted to be first-team All-State. I wanted to be the leader on the team. I was first-team All-State linebacker and offensive guard, captain of the team, and we went undefeated. And Jeep, in the summer when he wasn't allowed legally to have practices, I could conduct the practices for the team, and he had me run the practices in his absence. Well, that's what he did to change my life. And and I made it all through high school. I wound up going to court. I had an F average my freshman year. F. I was thrown out of algebra and put in basic arithmetic. Two times four is what? I wound up getting 94s average and 100. You know, I wound up getting all A's. And I went to Cornell. I played football at Cornell. I am totally influenced by what Jeep Bidnerick took an interest in me. And I have always felt that's my calling. It's a funny thing, but some of these kids that I'm a surrogate dad to have great dads, have great families. And and I've, it's like I've, and the dads, and they call me Pop. And the dads don't mind at all. And the dads have become my friends too. So it, Jeep, there's never, something powerful about a father figure. You know, I think Jesus' best day in his life was when he heard his heavenly father say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Both of us didn't have biological dads who said that to us. I still long to have somebody who I look up to as a father figure say, hey, you're my son, and you're doing really well in life. I'm really pleased with you. I think one of the reasons why we don't hear that more often is guys aren't willing to offer aggressive affirmation to just say, son, you're doing really well. Do you feel that, though? Do you feel like you wish you would have had one of those guys look at you? With I know a, one thing. Yes. I want, as a father, I want my kids in my life. Mm. I want my kids in my life because I never had anyone do that for me. I want to be the dad that they I never had. Those dads, four of them, plus my biological, were never in my life. 
And that's why I want my three kids in my life, and I spend so much wanting to be with them. Let the record show that Jeff Ruby is crying in the studio right now, and that is something that is great about you. Your daughter, I know her. She feels so loved by you. She feels like she has been elevated because of you. I mean, knowing that you were coming on, she's texting me left and right. I don't know your other sons. I know one of your daughters. They're great. Well, they're great because a dad is doing something great inside of them. Dad, well done. Well done. It meant a lot to me. And, uh, you know, I always said when when we opened the precinct, thank you, by the way, everyone said, man, you're hot. You got to do another one. I said, no. We finally did another one six years later with with the waterfront. But I didn't want, I had so many opportunities to go around the country with, with, we want a precinct here. We want a precinct there. We want to, so the guy that worked for me wound up doing that, calling it something else. But I wanted to see my children grow before I saw the company grow. I wanted to at least hold up. I'm not going to other cities until my children grow up. It was more important to, to see them grow than the company. So... The kids stunted my growth for a while in terms of the company, but that's the way I want it. But the irony of the whole thing is because of those three kids, the company is now growing, and it's because largely what they've been able to bring to help me. I could never run this company without them. So waiting all that time to be a parent, to be a good dad, to be a coach their football teams, to, to be meeting with the counselors and all of that stuff, and the principals and being, you know, involved. I wanted that, and... Now, those three kids are the reason we are growing. So it was just a temporary stunt of the growth. interesting. You know, we talk about making aggressive moves, and most guys would have just said, well, yeah, I need to expand no matter what. Expand, expand. That's an aggressive move. But in reality, the most aggressive move you made was choosing your kids. The most aggressive move was saying, no, I'm going to aggressively make sure they're taken care of. And now good things are happening. Yeah. Hey, my guest today has been Jeff Ruby. An aggressive man who's made some aggressive moves, and we are all the better for your wisdom given to us. Jeff Ruby, thank you for, for your time today. Thank you for uh, having me here. I, I'm honored. Hey, thanks for listening. If this episode has impacted you, hey, share with somebody else. All of us have influence. People that can look to us for direction. Use your influence positively, aggressively. And if this has meant something to you, then pass along to those that you're leading. Uh, You can see more at bryantome.com or search me on Instagram. Special thanks to the band Judges for our music. You can find more from them on Instagram at thebandjudges or at facebook.com slash thebandjudges. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.